Welcome back to another episode of What They Aren't Telling You with Melissa Floyd. We are continuing our discussion with law enforcement today. This is going to be a several episode series and it's going to be mixed in with some of the other topics. So if this is really interesting to you, keep listening because you'll continue to get more and more experience and insight shared from both female and male officers, some that are currently working, some that are already retired, and there's a lot coming up with this. And so I'm looking forward to this episode. This is another female police officer who is right outside of Chicago. And again, if you don't remember or haven't listened to the previous episodes on law enforcement, we are keeping these officers anonymous And that way they can really share their insight without having to worry about that honesty kind of coming back to them in any kind of negative way, especially right now with all the tension and stuff that's going on. So welcome to the show. Thank you for being a part of this. Thank you for having me. It's like I want to give you like a fake name so I can talk to you, (laughs) like like a witness protection program name so I can just, hey, Sherry, what do you feel about this? But of course, we're not going to do that. We'll just address you without a name, which feels very impersonal and uncomfortable. So I apologize in advance, but for your benefit, this is what we'll do. So let's get started with the first question. I've been really curious about how law enforcement officers, as a condition of their job, basically live in this state of fight or flight at all times. I posted about this a couple weeks ago. I find this really fascinating because it can really affect Things like mental health, it can affect decision-making, it can affect mental and emotional stress on the job day in, day out. And I think it's something that people are forgetting to include in the conversation about the actual job itself. So can you explain to me your thoughts? What is this like for you, fight or flight? And how does that transfer to the way that you do risk assessment as it relates to potential suspects, because everything has to be a split second decision. It all has to be in the moment. It absolutely relates to our every single interaction with, with citizens, civilians. It starts in the academy for us. It really does. We're set with different scenarios where they set you up to fail so that it will trigger that flight or flight response. And um, for us, you know, we're not allowed to flee, so we can't run away and we're not allowed to freeze either. So your only option is to fight. And for us, that's that's assessing everything. I started out in a state where there was no concealed carry requirements whatsoever. So when I was training, it was everyone has a gun. Everyone can potentially harm you or kill you, and you won't go home to your families that night. And for your listeners, they can Google officer ambushed, and it'll come up with article after article of officers who've been ambushed. It'll come up with videos. You can also Google iPhone gun which is an iPhone that is a gun, but it looks like a phone. Hmm. So, and then there's the lipstick stun guns too. So like every single little thing that you wouldn't normally think could be a weapon can be used as a weapon. Well, I think that this is important specifically because when you sort of train your brain to respond a certain way, like you're saying, this starts in training. If as a condition of your job, you're there 8, 10, 12 hours a day, multiple days out of the week, and you're living in that state of reactivity, everything is a response, and that response has to happen right now, and it's like muscle memory. Being in that state makes it really hard to necessarily analyze thoroughly 
every single scenario, especially when you're looking at circumstances. Other officers have told me like you're in low light circumstances. This is nighttime or people are moving quickly. You can't tell what they're reaching for, what they're not reaching for. A lot of these other factors make it really difficult to do that very thorough assessment every single time in the moment. And I kind of feel like the public sort of expects officers to make the right decision every time, all the time, on every situation, as if you had time to really dissect it. But they put you in a circumstance where you're required to make these split-second decisions. It's literally a condition of the job. It is. And you'll, you'll be on a call where it'll be person with a gun call. You'll handle that. Of course, that fight-or-flight response comes through. So it's your, you're alarmed. Oh, my goodness, something's happening, something's bad. Um, you resist it. And then there's that, that body response of exhaustion afterwards. Well, you don't get to be exhausted because in two more minutes, you're getting dispatched to yet another call. Yeah, I've heard of this, this idea of you're living in these high levels of cortisol, and then it's this huge dump, what she called as adrenaline dump. And that up and down, that roller coaster physically, to anybody who's kind of into health, or a lot of people that follow me are into holistic health, because that's something I advocate for, you're very aware and very understanding of that relationship between stress and the body. And from these articles I read from psychologists that deal specifically with trauma and law enforcement, they talk about the mental toll that that takes just being in a state of fight or flight all the time. So I kind of think, again, not to ever excuse bad behavior. Obviously, there should always be consequences. I've said this before on other episodes, there should always be consequences for intentional bad behavior or even negligent bad behavior. But there also still needs to be a level of understanding of what does the job entail? What kind of stress does that create for people mentally, physically, emotionally, and how could that maybe bleed over into some of the duties that are required? I mean, you guys have disagreements with family members and spouses and stress and days you're not sleeping multiple days in a row. You have all the regular family stuff like everybody has, but then you have to be in this position where you are alert and clear and rational at every single moment, which nobody really has to do that on their job because they're not living in this life or death situation the way that you guys are. And I think it would be helpful if that became part of the discussion and maybe factored in to how we treat law enforcement and how we look at the conditions in the job, because I think a lot of people probably wouldn't want this job. (laughs) A lot of people don't want the job. I mean, I, I can't imagine. It absolutely has to be a calling. You cannot one day wake up from your accounting job and say, you know what, I'm going to go be the police. That makes sense. And you mentioned to me this idea of feeling ambushed, caught by surprise. What is it like to kind of work in a circumstance, knowing you've got children at home? What's it like to work in a circumstance where, like you said, anybody could be a potential danger to you? living in kind of a state of fear, but then you're also required to be the protectors so that other people in the community aren't fearful. What is that like for you? As a mom, I tend to compartmentalize. And when I'm at work, my kids are not in my head. I cannot think about where they are and what they're doing or how their day is going. I have to be focused on being able to be home for them when my shift is over. Hmm. So I need to be able to go home. I have to go home at night. We say it all the time. You know, at the beginning of shift, you know, we do our little briefing and the, the next words out of everybody's mouth is we go home tonight. 
Wow. Did you know that going into the job that you'd be dealing with that every single day? Like, of course, you knew that in theory, but did you really know how heavily that would weigh on you? You know, going into it, that this is a possibility. You might get shot. This might happen to you. You might be in a life or death fight. You might be in a brawl for your life. I've been in a brawl for my life in in uniform. And you don't really know what that's going to do to you until you're actually in that position and you're in that moment. Wow. You know, one of the things that I'm seeing kind of a lot of people discuss right now, there's a lot of tension happening right now. Everybody knows what's kind of what's going on. But one of the things I'm seeing a lot of discussion or debate about, or a lot of arguing, I should say, about is really this idea of use of force and excessive force. I've had police officers tell me, you know, the public just doesn't understand what use of force legally really means and what police departments authorize police officers to do as part of law, as part of training. Do you see that same kind of disconnect between the public and the police department as it relates to what's acceptable use of force or what is considered excessive use of force? I do. I see it not only from civilian standpoint of, oh my goodness, that was excessive, but I've also seen it from a coworker standpoint. Oh, I thought that was excessive. It's all going to go back to like when we watch a, we're watching training videos and we're Monday morning quarterback, what another officer has gone through. And well, I think that was excessive. Well, I don't think it was. And it goes back to how we were trained. What's going to be excessive to one person may not be to another. It's all in, in that training. And you're going to fall back on the level of training that you had, not the level of training you wanted to rise to. So when you see a, a group of guys talking and they're like, well, I would have done this or I would have kicked his ass or I would have done this. I had put him in chokehold and I'd, I'd take him down. Well, if you've never trained for that, you're not going to be able to do that. Do you think that there is some training happening in different parts of the country that maybe needs to be adjusted? Some places where they allow certain holds and things that maybe aren't the safest and are a cause for issues with police brutality? I went through the academy almost a decade ago, and we did not train choke holds or blood holds, anything like that. We didn't, we didn't train that way. So, you know, from 10 years to now, that's not in an academy training level. So when you see something like the George Floyd incident where you see um, an officer who's been an officer, I think, for 18 or 19 years, so that means he went through the academy a while ago, too, but his department might have different protocols, that when you see something like that happen, do you think that should never be allowed in any police department? The reason that it's allowed in most departments is it, it goes to how long you've been in that fight for. If you've been in the fight for two minutes and you are not going to be able to physically keep yourself alive in that fight, that's when those kind of holds are allowed. It's less excessive than using a firearm. So you think it's more of a time and place issue? It's a circumstantial thing. It is. It's going to be dependent on the level of training. Unfortunately, I don't see it in some of the, the older guys on the department, the older, older people who've been in law enforcement for a couple of decades. They don't go to jujitsu classes and learn how to ground fight, and they don't learn how to they don't further that education. They don't further that training because, well, I'm old. This is how I've trained. And they're going to fall back to that training every time. They're going to fall back to their academy training because that's what was instilled in them when they first started. So now, is that an option, this idea of jujitsu? Is that an option where you could basically be training in ways to subdue a suspect that are not going to be fatal or not going to be injuring the suspect? 
that type of training is just now like starting to become available to every officer. Some have taken it upon themselves to go and take those classes on their own time. But some of the, some of our um, like local community colleges and some of our academies are starting to train that ground fighting. They are trying to really, really, really bring that to the level of officers that are graduating from the academy, but also who've already graduated. That's interesting because I haven't heard about that yet. And that seems like maybe an avenue that would be beneficial. I didn't mention this to you before, but I'm kind of curious. And of course, as a woman, as a female cop, have you been in situations where you felt physically unsafe, like you were not able to defend yourself? Not to the point of being not able to defend myself, but I've absolutely been in situations where I felt like this is going to escalate if I don't de-escalate it. And what's a way to do that? Well, as women, we tend to talk a lot and <laughs> we tend to be able to talk our way out of the situation or talk someone. We, we say it all the time, just talk them into handcuffs, talk them into it, explain to them, look, it's not as bad as you think it's going to be. This is going to be fine. We're going to go to the station. We're going to take a look at what's in the records and we'll get you to court and you'll be done. It'll take a day. And a lot of times the way you approach them and the way you explain things really does deescalate the situation. And there's times where that is just not going to happen. That's so interesting because I hadn't really thought about that. It almost seems like it would be to the benefit to have a female there for all situations where they could come at it from a different perspective and maybe talk to somebody in a different way that doesn't feel so combative. Because I think in general, a lot of people tend to think that cops are combative. There's just something very, I don't want to say antagonistic, but, you know, you, similar to the physical view of like the bulletproof vest and the posture of this very strong and very like a wall up, right? You kind of feel that. I mean, I've felt that in contact with police officers. It does not feel necessarily welcoming. It does not feel like very comfortable. And Again, I think a lot of that has to do with the condition of the job. I mean, that's part of what you have to do to protect yourself and protect others is you're always assessing the situation. You're not going to be friends with somebody right away. You have no idea what the circumstance is. So I get that. But it's funny. I think a lot of times with male officers, you do sort of feel an instant defensiveness, just a certain kind of thing that's there that I can maybe see how a female's perspective, especially a mother who knows how to talk to children and knows how to talk to and be understanding and be nurturing and sort of offer with difficulty, receiving difficulty, know how to offer rationalization. It might be, you know, to the benefit to have females involved in that. I'm always concerned with as a female, you know, being overpowered by the physical size and strength of what I would guess most often are male suspects. For the most part, it is male, male suspects. Um, I do want to go back to uh, meeting people in general. If you, we're dispatched to a call, we're not going to someone on their best day. We are coming in on their very worst day. Their communication skills have broken down to the point where they are no longer able to make rational decisions for themselves. And they call 911 for us to make those decisions for them because it has just gone completely awry. They do not call us on their best days. Mm -hmm. So when you're completely, you're, you're inundated every single day, sometimes, you know, like you said, the eight, the 10, the 12 hour shifts of just inundation of 
help me solve this problem, help me solve this problem. A lot of times I've seen it with, with coworkers and myself included, we get to a scene and we go, okay, I already know this problem. Let's solve it. A lot of times we don't, we don't sit and we don't listen. Hmm. That communication level that breaks down completely. And we do it on, on our own side of it, not just the citizens, but ourselves. We, we tend to go, okay, I've been, I've been to this house seven times in the last week. I already know the problem. And that just gets met with that fight, you know, like, okay, you're not listening to me. I'm going to put up a fight. I get that. And speaking of communication, uh, you had mentioned, you know, one of the big problems that we're seeing with law enforcement could have something to do with the hiring process and who is hired and the particular pool that they're being chosen from. I've heard multiple officers mention hiring as a problem because they talk about these young males at 20 and 21 years old coming out of the police academy and getting put into a position of power, again, with weapons, but that have not really developed those verbal skills and those communication skills and the people skills that clearly, as you're saying, are important to serving the community. Because even though you're trying to solve the problem, even though you're trying to handle a suspect and keep people safe, I'm sure a lot of your calls are not involving violent crime. And a lot of your calls have to deal with diffusing situations, de-escalating, and that comes down to basic communication skills. If the officers are not capable of that, there's a chance that it builds the situation instead of breaks it down. And that could be a risk, especially when you have a male suspect and a male officer, and it becomes like a toe-to-toe kind of thing. Can you tell me a little more about the hiring and this idea of communication skills and why that's so important? I can. A lot of the the men that I work with, they are very good at their communication skills. They're older guys. They've been on the department for a little while, so they, they are very good at it. And some of them, we get them, they're straight out of, you know, they go straight from high school at 18. They go to the military and they're in the military for a couple of years. They graduate and the requirement for some police departments is you can be 20 and a half years old going into the police academy. And your academy training is going to be anywhere from five to seven months. And then from there, you're going to go into a field training program for another four to six months, depending on the department. So you do train for a little while, but you come out of it as a 22-year-old. And I don't know about you, but me at 22, I was a very different person than I was at 32. Right. So the communication is there. You're a little more mature. You've had some trauma in your life, in your own personal life. You, you know, maybe you've gotten married, maybe you've gotten divorced, maybe you've had a kid, bought a house, the, you know, the, the bills, and you start to realize that things are not always black and white. And maybe that has a lot to do with also a certain level of compassion, that you can have for people that are not having their best days, like you said, and understanding that the stress of life sometimes brings out the worst in people and kind of having a better understanding of that, more of a sympathy in a way, while still maintaining security, but having that level of sympathy. Right. That you're going to be dealing with people who've lost loved ones, lost their jobs, they're losing their house. And if you haven't ever had any of that trauma in your life, if you've never lost something or had, you're not going to be able to sympathize. There's no empathy. You cannot empathize with someone if you've never had any kind of trauma. And a lot of times, I mean, these, like I said, it's men and women too. I'm going to throw women in there too. They get out of the military. They come out of the academy. They're 20 years old, 21 years old. They don't have any life experience yet. They have nothing to draw on. So when you go and you meet these people, you have no common ground. And it seems like, especially in a state of tension like we're in now, the thing that the 
law enforcement community and the communities that it is serving probably needs the most is finding that common ground. Exactly. Absolutely. So one thing, when we talked the other day, one thing I was really interested in that no other officer brought up was something that is kind of near and dear to me because I've been obviously in a fight for medical freedom and informed consent and vaccine safety awareness and vaccine reaction awareness injuries like what happened to my daughter and many people that I know. And I've seen a new generation of children that have these neurodevelopmental disorders and neurological damage. It affects physical behavior. It affects emotional behavior and it affects mental behavior. And what we are seeing as this generation gets older is they're getting into the teen years, they're getting into the young adult years. The way that they respond, many of these kids are nonverbal. Many of these kids can get aggressive with their family members, their caretakers, their mothers, their fathers, with themselves. And this is because they have an inability to communicate. This is usually because they have physical pain inside their body. And this is the way it manifests is lashing out in certain behavior. Well, now that we're at a place where we see an entire new generation of kids with neurodevelopmental disorders and special needs, I've seen a handful of issues and cases across the country with children, older children, young adults with special needs who are being met with law enforcement in some kind of incident where the law enforcement officer sees that individual as somebody who's non-compliant instead of understanding that this is a child with special needs or with special concerns and needs special consideration. And I, I believe in one of the cases, one individual was shot. I think that might have happened more than once. It's happened more than once, but the case specifically was in uh, North Miami. It was in July of 2016. And that had to deal with and uh, these children with special needs. They grow up, they become adults. They end up in group homes. Some of them can live independently, but for the most part, they end up in the group homes. This particular incident, there's an adult who was in his 20s, was sitting in the street, and his caregiver was sitting next to him. And officers had been called for, they had been dispatched for subject with a gun. So they get on scene, and they can't really see what's in the hands of the special needs person, the caregiver sitting on the ground. And you can kind of see them just near each other, but it looked as if the man with the special needs had a weapon on the caregiver, which was not the case. Uh, it was a toy car. But in trying to get the special needs person to man to respond to them and obey commands, and of course he's not going to obey the commands because he's he you know he's autistic. He's not listening. He's not going to be aware of, of his surroundings and that he's being given commands. So he refused commands, obviously. And when officers went to shoot him, thinking that he had a gun they actually ended up hitting his caregiver. And what happened to the caregiver? That's an easy Google. The caregiver was actually taken to the hospital. He did recover from his injuries. It's an easy Google search. All you got to do is type in North Miami caregiver shot, and it comes up as the very first article. So did this spark kind of a discussion amongst law enforcement? Did you, in your police department, end up discussing this incident at the time? Do you remember? This was in 2016. I know that there's been many prior to 2016. So in law enforcement, we've, I'm always bringing up videos like these and showing them or sharing them with people at my department. Hey, look at this. Do you see how this went down? 
And from that, I'm not sure that the general public is aware, but we as a group, as law enforcement as a group, has started taking crisis intervention training. I just went to it in February. It's a 40-hour class. They actually went a, a little above and beyond the 40 hours. The class I went to was great. They had professional actors come in and do these scenarios and they acted as if they had special needs, they were mentally ill. It was it was a fantastic training. And what it does is it puts you in that mode of like, okay, not every, you're not a hammer every time. It's not always a nail. Sometimes you're gonna have to bring some finesse to it. You're gonna have to talk to people and try and figure out a way to get them to tell you what's going on if they're not physically capable of telling you what's going on. And so why do you personally feel kind of emotionally invested in this issue as it relates to kids with special needs being treated carefully and safely by law enforcement? Well, and in my personal life, I have family members who are autistic and special needs. So I would want an officer, if, if something happened to my family member and law enforcement needed to be called, I want them to understand that he is not going to answer your questions appropriately, but he's not a dangerous kid. So do you see this now as a problem for the future as these numbers continue to rise dramatically? I do. I do. We push the CIT training. Uh, every single person on my department is scheduled and slated to before COVID happened. They were all scheduled and slated to be completely trained up by 2021. I can see that this would be a considerable problem when you are forced to make these split second decisions like we talked about and not knowing if there's a weapon, not a weapon, somebody's not complying. Some of these boys that are teenagers and young adults are large, big, physically big, and like I said, can be aggressive, but not so much in a violent, dangerous way to the community. And understanding more about the way that they behave, the way they engage and how to engage with, I think that's going to have to end up being literally part of every law enforcement officer's training to understand what this next generation is going to come to. We touched at it um, in my academy, but I was the one who brought it to the table even then because, again, this is part of my life. So if something were to happen to my family member and no one was given any training, well, there's there's the whole, you know, there's the whole in, in law enforcement is not every person you come in contact with is a criminal. Well, good for you. I bet there are mothers and fathers out there everywhere that are appreciative of the fact that you are bringing this to the table, because I think this is something that is not talked about nearly enough. And a lot of times it's not something people pay attention to until it's personal. And so good for you for being an advocate for all these other parents, because they all have children that are in circumstances like this, and their child could also be on the negative response. And it doesn't have to be a, a killing necessarily. It doesn't even have to be a shooting, but it could be a trauma that that child or teenager or young adult experiences by this very tense or aggressive circumstance. These children are often very emotionally sensitive and things stay with them. So having an experience with a stranger that's aggressive because of a lack of understanding can be something that emotionally traumatizes them for years to come, which of course will affect their entire family as well. So I know there are many families out there that are supporting you in your desire to bring this type of awareness to other officers? You know, we, we see it, you know, often. It's a, you can Google the videos. They're everywhere. There's a lot of kids who, you know, special needs, uh, autism in particular, they'll have something that they in their hand that they fidget with. 
Right. There's always something that they kind of focus all their energy on. The fidget spinners were a great thing when they when they came on the scene. But in law enforcement, we are trained to, we want to see your hands. We want to see empty hands. We want to see that you are not moving your hands anywhere. They're not in your pockets. And a lot of times those kids, when we say, get your hands out of your pockets, they don't know what we mean by that. And they can't stop themselves. They cannot stop themselves. And they don't understand, get your hands out of your pockets. This is what I was taught to do when I am feeling stressed. And feeling uncomfortable. And many of these kids, they have a very big issue with strangers. Exactly. With people they don't know. So you've got people they don't know communicating with them in a way that's making them uncomfortable already. And so, yes, they go to these mechanisms to calm themselves. And they're not able to calm themselves in that situation. They're not able to stop. They're not able to necessarily follow instructions this way. I think this is going to be, honestly, a huge issue. And I think these numbers have just exploded over the last five to eight years. This is going to be and should be something that is on mainstream news. And this is something that is being addressed because the general public would also benefit from understanding how to interact with these particular individuals who, again, could be their neighbors, could be people at a store that they're in, and understanding kind of where these behaviors come from and sort of understanding how to deal with them in an empathetic way. So right now, we're seeing a lot of this tension. There's definitely a very negative climate as it relates to police, cops, law enforcement right now. In fact, many would call it an anti-cop climate, in fact, What do you think about what's going on right now with the way that the media, mainstream media, is presenting who law enforcement are? Unfortunately, you're never going to, you're not going to see the good videos as much as you're going to see the the ones that are going to get them the most likes, the most shares, the most viewing. It's going to be the violent offenders, the video is going to be edited or altered in some way, or it's going to be somebody's shaky camera phone it's never going to be the good stuff. It just isn't. And we're law enforcement. We're human, just like everybody else is. And we're imperfect. We make mistakes. And so how do you think then we can improve the climate between communities, could be communities of color, communities in general, and law enforcement? For the communities, go to your local police department and ask if you can do a ride-along. You're allowed to go and, and, you know, I did it even before I became an officer. I went and did ride-alongs with several departments in the area I lived in. And you get in the front of a patrol car with an officer and you go from call to call and you're going to feel those those fight-or-flight moments. You're going to feel that adrenaline just being a rider in the front seat. You're not even getting out on the calls. You just get to hear the radio traffic and you see the officer walk away from the car. You're going you're gonna to feel that. You're going to understand what they go through, what we go through on a shiftly basis. Uh, There's citizens academies. A lot of departments have a citizen academy where you can come in and they'll explain to you uh, use of force, the policies and procedures that the department has. Uh, You can get involved with your neighborhood watch. That's definitely a great way to get involved with and, and know your officers. So when an officer does go to your neighbor's house or to your kid's school, you can say, oh, which officer was it? Because you know at least a few of the officers on the department. So have they created these programs with the intention of bridging the community and the police departments? Because I actually didn't even know about these different things, like you're saying, a Citizens Academy or being able to do a ride-along if you're not intending on going in that career, but just as a citizen. Mm -hmm. And then 
Neighborhood Watch getting involved. Are these programs like by design there to kind of create this camaraderie between citizens and police? They absolutely are. I know our department put on a, uh, a police night where we had a local band and food that was local. And most of our officers were there, either if we were on shift or off shift. And the neighborhood, you know, the, the city got to come out and come meet us and see that we are real people. Some of the guys brought their kids and there were significant others. So they could see that, oh, these are not just robots in a uniform. These are humans. These are people. These, these are families. And so what do you think you would want people to know the most about police officers that you think they just don't know? Just kind of what I've been reiterating is that we've got families, too. We have people who depend on us at home. And for me personally, I don't go out looking on my shift. I don't go out looking to make someone's day the worst. I am there to help. I want to be there to help. I'm the helper. And I think it's Mr. Rogers who put it best was look for the helpers in the bad situations. I don't want kids in the neighborhood to be afraid of me. I want them to look at me and say, oh, I know her. She can, she can help me with this. That's fair. And then knowing that that's your goal and your goal is to kind of create this trust, this level of trust between you and the citizens that you serve, with all of the negativity that's happening right now and the negative view of cops, how do you feel about that? How does that end up translating to you when you do go about your day every day trying to find solutions for people and trying to make people's lives better and, above all else, get home to your family at the end of the night? For myself, personally, I spend a lot of time training and I'm watching you know, videos of what did happen with uh, Officer Derek Chauvin and George. Like, I put myself in those situations and in those scenarios because I want people to see, and I want to see someone's point of view that's not my own. And do you think personally, like on a mental and emotional level, that there is somewhat of a toll that you take in this job that comes home with you at the end of the night? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Actually, jotted down a note in my personal life. I, I'm always watching other people's hands. I don't greet someone by looking at their face. I usually am looking at their hands half the time. And even when I'm with my kids or I'm at a barbecue, that's that's just it's ingrained in your brain that that's how you're going to keep your family safe. That's how you're going to keep yourself safe. And in raising kids, because I've seen what I've seen, there's a lot of times where my husband will be the one who says, you know, you should just let him go and do that. Even though I'm like, nope, you're not going there. You're not doing that. You're not. I I've held off on experiences for them just because there's a fear there. I've seen a lot of horrible things. And how do you handle it? How do you get through each of the days? A lot of it is talking it over with, well, with my husband or with a a friend. I don't tend to keep a lot of law enforcement friends. Um, Most of my friends are in different fields and careers so that I don't have a constant inundation of bad calls, bad things happening, and when I'm at home, I'm focused on, on my kids and my family and my friends rather than one more call, one more, one more day at work. And do you think, have you ever thought about the idea of term limits for officers, about that being something that would be beneficial because of the stress of the job and because of the mental health toll that comes as a result? Yeah, it used to be that in law enforcement, you could, we'd say, I got my 20. You could put in your 20 years and you could be done. You would retire with your benefits and, and that was the end. You put in 20 years and you were, and you were finished. So that technically was its own term limit because that was when you could apply for your, your retirement benefits. 
And in recent years, we've got our tier one guys, that's the retirement tier where they can retire at their 20 year mark. For myself, because I was hired past a certain year, my 20 turned into 25. So I don't vest with my pension until 25 years on the job. And our pensions are because we contribute to it, our cities contribute to them, but we don't contribute to social security. Our money doesn't go to social security. So like a normal person with a normal job, that line on your check stub that says social security, that's going to go when you're planning on that for when you retire, when you are done working. Ours, we don't have, we don't pay into social security uh, in law enforcement. So it goes into your pension. And now we're not allowed to, to take our pension until that 25 year mark. We're already limited with a term limit of 25 years if you want to retire with your benefit. And 25 years is obviously a very long time in this job. Very long time. It's a long time for any job. It's a very long time. And my, me, myself personally, I don't tend to pick up a lot of overtime because I don't want the overtime shifts. I'd rather spend the time with my family. But there are guys who, there are officers who need the overtime shifts because their significant other doesn't work or what have you. So they're working twice as many hours as I'd be working. They've got side jobs that they're also working and it's all exactly the same work. It's all law enforcement. So it's, it's that constant adrenaline dump. And so do you think there could be some more focus and support given to mental health of law enforcement officers? Oh, absolutely. Up until recently, it wasn't even, we weren't even on the radar. I know military was military and PTSD was absolutely on the radar and it was kind of overlooked in law enforcement. And if your listeners Google uh, law enforcement suicide, you're going to see some shocking numbers. It seems like mental health support should be a prime focus, considering the stuff we've talked about today with the physical, mental and emotional toll, and then requiring that same person that's carrying that load to be rational, calm and analytical for every single circumstance that is a life or death situation. Much like the military, it seems like this needs to be that kind of focus because there is so much stress put on these individuals and support needs to be had. I've had officers tell me, you know, the things that they see during the day. They're not really able to even necessarily share those things with their spouses because they don't want to give the real picture about how dangerous their job is. And so they keep a lot of that to themselves. And I've had other officers tell me this is not something they can even talk about with each other because you don't want to be seen as weak. Right. And you want to have a certain level of strength. That's a concern, too. If you're building up all of this, how do you release it if we can't be honest with each other and then with the public about the reality of the job? I think it needs to be training all the way around. I think there needs to be training in dealing with people with emotional and mental disabilities, but I also think there needs to be training on how to deal with your own emotional and mental disabilities when it comes to what's happened on calls and and how things are decompressed. Some of the larger departments will have, they'll reach out to you if they know that a certain, you know, call has happened or it's been a child death or, or something just incredibly gruesome. They do have that support group that will reach out to you, the officers and say, Hey, do you need to come in and talk? Do you need to take some personal time? A lot of the smaller departments, that's just not written in the budget. And speaking of budget, there's been a lot of discussion now of defunding the police. What are your thoughts on defunding? Do you think it would be successful? And ultimately, will it actually help 
communities of color? No, unfortunately, the defund law enforcement movement, what it's going to do is it's going to bring in less perfect candidates. You're going to get people who will do the job for less money, less training, less everything. And you're going to get people who have questionable backgrounds. You're, you're going to see a huge influx of that just because there's no money there to do a thorough background investigation. So unfortunately, we need more training. There's so many amazing technologies out there for training for law enforcement now with the Milo reactive screens and the Megat reactive screens. And we only get a certain amount of time with those, depending on the department and depending on the funds, because they are very expensive. And so taking away funding is literally going to take away the opportunity to improve the officer's ability to respond the best way possible in future situations. Oh, absolutely. Sending an officer, like our department, sending two officers at a time to the crisis intervention training, that's expensive. That is, that is a budget line on a, on a city, and they are looking at those. When you go to defund the police, that's the first thing that goes is your, our training is going to go. And then from there, it's going to be it's going to be rate of pay. And you're going to see more and more <laughs> calls and reports and videos and news media of excessive force, because now these officers, instead of going to a training that was seven months long with six months worth of field training after the fact, now it's going to be three months of training and two months of field training. And you're going to get an officer who has as, you know, as much training to do the job as the local kid who's working at McDonald's who learned how to use the fry machine. Well, let me ask you one other thing, too, because I know that this is an issue officers have talked about with me and the public is definitely concerned about. There clearly have been examples of corruption within departments. And sometimes people would say, well, if you increase funding, there's really no way to know where that money gets placed. And there are a lot of people within police departments in high levels that maybe are taking that money and doing different things with it. And there are a lot of political issues as it relates to high levels of police departments and a lot of concern over corruption. Is that something you've ever seen? Is that something you ever worry about that you see happen other places as well? And what's the solution to that? Because if we do increase funds, we want to know that they're going to the right place. As far as level of corruption or, or things like that, you're going to have bad people in every career field. We see it with teachers and officers, fire departments, we see it in even in clergy. I mean, you're going to have people in every career field that are just out to do evil. They're out to do no good. And so what's the system of checks and balances as it relates to the police departments? For me, being a patrol officer and just a, a toe in the training department, I couldn't tell you as far as our budget goes. I could point you in the direction of an officer who's in charge of the budget. But I mean... I mean, who, where is the system of checks and balances in general, I mean, to kind of make sure that that corruption is not happening and, and make sure that there's transparency and honesty within law enforcement? A lot of times those village and um, city budgets can be found online. You can Google and research and find, you know, your local department, your local police department has a budget and this is what we spent on training and this is what we spent on our uh, vehicles and vehicle maintenance. And this is, you can, it's all FOIA. You can also FOIA just about anything for every police department. In fact, everything. So another question that I'm just th throwing in here for you, when we do see 
cops that basically act out in bad behavior. This is just a bad cop, maybe an evil person. You said you'll get them in anything, right? Sometimes there'll be circumstances like that. A lot of people used to think of the police department as kind of this good old boy society where they're going to cover the tracks for anybody else and protect each other, those in blue, right? I'm hearing that that really happens less and less these days because people are more willing, other colleagues are more willing to call out bad behaviors now and be more transparent with that. Do you think it's changed over time? And is it really still that kind of environment where people can get away with bad things because it gets brushed under the carpet? Unfortunately, the good old days, as they would call them, I wasn't an officer for. I was a, I was a child. Um, having only been in law enforcement for 10 years, the first department I worked for, I never saw that. It was not based on anything but your application and your merit as to where you went and, and how you got there in your department. What I have noticed is because you, your chiefs and your assistant chiefs, they were all a voted in position. They are not a hired by HR position. They, they did not apply for their job. They were, they were voted in or they were brought in by a mayor or a village manager. You do see that nepotism. You do see more corruption levels when it has to do with there's no actual hiring process. This person, you can, there's a lot of departments now. You don't have to have law enforcement experience to apply to be the chief. Interesting. I do feel like a lot of chiefs of police are very much connected to mayors Absolutely. of their cities. And I'm seeing a lot of almost political behavior from the head of the police department that way. Absolutely. Their position on that department is dependent on the political party. It's dependent on the mayor. It's dependent on the governor. Their position, it's dependent on on where their loyalties lie for their political parties. And that's a shame, obviously, because we know whenever that happens, it sort of influences behavior, influences decisions, and tends to never really be about the citizens at that point anymore. And we see this across the board in lots of different things. But I will say, as a mother myself, I do understand as much as possible for not having witnessed it and being there, the toll that the job would take and the difficulty in which you encounter on a daily basis. And I have a lot of respect for you and gratitude. I want to say this, thanking you for putting your life at risk to keep others safe on a regular basis. I don't think I really take the time to honor and acknowledge members of law enforcement but I would also expect that they would be there to protect me if I needed them. And I tend to forget that the day-to-day -day life for them must be so challenging. And I think it's probably something, especially now, where there aren't a lot of thank yous going around. So I want to say from a mother to a mother, I appreciate you. Thank you for, for what you do and for showing up. And like I said, for putting your life at risk to keep others safe. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm not sure what to say with that one. Um, I would, even without the, the gratitude, I would still get up and put on the uniform and go to work every day. My job is to make a difference. That wraps up this interview with law enforcement today that we had. I hope you guys are getting a little more insight every time. What's kind of cool is being able to go in different directions 
with the discussion based on the individual officer. And this is part of the reason why I actually have phone calls with these officers ahead of time to get to know them a little more, get to know what they bring to the table individually so that we can kind of cover lots of different things. And while we may talk about some of the same things, we're getting it from different angles. And I hope you guys find this valuable. I know I am finding it very valuable. And again, if you see an officer nearby you or in your community, maybe it's worth giving them an extra thank you today. I know everything is very tense. We need to make sure we're supporting a true solution and a bringing together of the community with those who are there to protect and serve. And thank you again for joining me on What They Aren't Telling You with Melissa Floyd. I will see you guys next time.